Good morning, Gideon's Army. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Last week, if you were here, Mark Evans took us through Psalm 133. I don't know how many of you were there, but it was a challenging call to unity. It was powerful, so if you haven't had a chance, you should listen on the podcast. It's amazing. And among the many good things that he shared with us, he reminded us about how the world has the right to challenge us and to walk away if we're not living out the message. That's been bouncing around in my head for a lot of time this week. But then in a broader sense, I have found myself thinking lately, maybe it has something to do with a significant birthday, about how to, what it means to finish well with God, in God, and to be a person whose greatest passion is to become more like Jesus. You know, we're never done with that, right? There is always more of God, more for us. I want to be a woman who, to her last breath, is pursuing Jesus Christ with my whole heart. And if the pursuit of God is something that you take seriously, and the fact that you're here on a holiday weekend with us would indicate that you do take that seriously, then King David is the perfect person to spend some time with. Now, there are many ways to read through Scripture. And I bet almost everybody in this room has read a lot. And I would say that everybody in this room would say that they take Scripture very seriously. We do. But I also know my own heart. I know that we can fool ourselves into putting a certain spin on Scripture without even realizing it. So personally, my own familiarity with certain biblical texts means that I can be lulled into a false sense of security. I can read something and be thinking, I got that, I know that. <laughs> and then you add to the fact that we all have many filters, conscious and unconscious, that we bring to the Word. And they've been formed and shaped by our upbringing, our, our, the people who parented us, our education, our life experience all these things, the social culture of living in a very affluent and well-educated society, this GTA we're in. The result can be that it can predispose us to hear certain messages very well, we like them, and to tune out others. Now, if this was a support group <laughs> this morning, this would be the point where I'd say, hi everybody, my name is Lois and I'm a recovering legalist. And in fact, ever since I thought about talking for Psalm, about Psalm 51, which is kind of some people think is a downer, I've been thinking about calling it a legalist looks at Psalm 51. Now, to give you an idea of how somebody like me can reshape a narrative, let's start with the byline to this psalm. So it says it's a Davidic psalm where, quote, the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I'm feeling better already. You know, these aren't my sins, adultery and murder. Woohoo! But they're big ones. So, you know what? I'm kind of feeling like I've dodged a bullet before I even start. Now, that has nothing to do with the fact that basically I'm missing the point. So, I just want to, to just run this a little further. Here are some, some simplistic and darker aspects to a legalist interpretation of the Christian life. See if you resonate with these. Number one, sin is largely a set of behaviors I should avoid. 
Now, in my conservative upbringing, I got the very clear message that God loves good girls. Number two, the appropriate response to sin and sinners is punishment. You know, it's about justice, right? The good people should get what they deserve, and the bad people should get what they deserve, too. Number three, people can perfect themselves if they would only work harder, work hard enough. And number four, I can tend to prioritize rules over relationship. When I see it up there in black and white, it's a little pathetic, isn't it? But thankfully, you know how God's word is. It's unlike any other book. The Holy Spirit was and is at work in and through it and in us, and if we're asking and listening, the scriptures have a way of reading us. So let's just take a moment right now and ask him to do that. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh. Restore to us this morning the joy of our salvation. God, I just pray that the things that we're talking about today would actually be the most exciting and attractive things to our hearts because it draws us to you. So read us, challenge us, draw us to yourself with your love and your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to look a little bit at the life of David, but a little bit of history here. Not too much, though. I'm assuming most of you are familiar with First and Second Samuel, and you've read this story. If you haven't read it lately, it's a fascinating read. It's a fascinating history lesson, but it's also a fascinating portrayal of leadership gone wrong and good leadership. You may recall, I'll start our story right in the sort of the bad news of what happens to King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. And Saul has a divided heart. And what happens is the prophet Samuel basically has to say to him, Saul, you're done. God is taking the kingdom from you. He can't trust you because you've rejected him. But instead, God has chosen for himself a man after his own heart to lead my people Israel. So right from the get-go, we see in Scripture that David is a different kind of leader. He is a man whose love and trust for God has taken root and has been developing from a very young age. And this man after God's own heart becomes a beloved king, and he ha has this incredible run of successes. He passes test after test, including numerous attempts on his own life and the chance to sort of jumpstart his kingship by killing Saul. He's got two chances. He says, no, I am not going to do that. God is going to make me leader. So everything is going terrifically until we get to 2 Samuel 11, where, for some funny reason, we don't know why, David decides to bow out of the pressures of leadership for a while and take a staycation. He spies Bathsheba bathing. He takes her into the palace. She becomes pregnant. That is a complication that only gets worse because Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is a man of honor. He is loyal to his king and to the, to the Israelites. And so, of course, what David tries to do, he mounts a couple of strategies to see if he can pin this pregnancy on Uriah. It doesn't work, and ironically, Uriah is killed for being a man of integrity and conscious, conscious, conscience, unlike his king. This, David's response to Uriah's death is pretty scary. 
he says, tell Joab to the messenger, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Say this to encourage Joab. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Bathsheba gets moved into the palace. You know, some months go by, their child is born. It's a big cover-up, except nobody's fooled. We read these kinds of stories in the newspaper all the time. God is not fooled, and he's not pleased. So what does he do? He sends the prophet Nathan, who, who gives this powerful little story of a rich man and a poor man. The poor man has only one little beloved lamb. The rich man has many sheep, and when a guest comes for dinner, whose lamb does he slaughter? but the poor man's. Well, David is irate. He said, this is unjust. This man deserves to die. Um, He should repay fourfold. He has taken no pity on that man. Nathan says to him, you, David, are that man. And David gets the wake-up call of his life. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, on the day that David sinned with Bathsheba, I seriously doubt he woke up that morning, worshipped as usual, wrote a new psalm for temple service, gave it to Christy, and was in bed with Bathsheba by the afternoon. Okay? Scripture gives us no indication of what started David on this road in the first place. Knowing my own heart and how sin works with me, um, things usually start small, don't they? The little seemingly innocent steps that sort of subtly shift your focus and get you going in another direction. You know, maybe David's just tired of warring all the time. He's just tired. He's tired of kinging. The pressures and responsibilities keep building on him, and he can maybe easily rationalize that there's not enough time for God. And maybe he just goes, I have earned some private pleasures. And you bet that the kingly culture of the nations around him are going to endorse that kind of view. No big deal, David. You own them all. You remember our Surprise the the World series that was in May? I told Doug Loveday it should be called Surprise the Christian. It surprised me. Anybody remember bells? (laughs) Remember bells? Bless others, eat with others, listen to the Spirit, learn from Jesus, recognize that you are a sent one. What was your most challenging week? For me, it was the last one. It was being sent. And how did I know it was challenging? Because I was avoiding that one. God was speaking to me about answering my door. Literally, answering my door. Um, I don't like to answer my front door unless I know someone's coming. And it's usually not because I'm genuinely too busy. I realize I have this idea, my home is my castle. And it struck me, though, as we were going through this series, that... That it's a little inconsistent to tell God that I want to meet new people. (laughs) And then when they come to my door, I don't open it (laughs) because I don't really want to meet them. I mean, I know I could get around that with excuses, but essentially that's kind of where I felt like I was supposed to land. So God is funny and his sense of humor is amazing. So very soon after I came to that understanding, the doorbell rang. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna, oh, okay, I'm going to answer the door. So it was my neighbor three doors down, 
she and her husband are first generation here. They're Egyptian. She, she just asked if she could throw a bag of garbage onto my garbage that week. No problem. We talked for about 20 minutes. And so the upshot was that about two weeks later, she invited my husband and I to a wonderful dinner at their home. We had a great time. And I'm getting together with her on Tuesday. Yay! Small change, small uncomfortable thing that I said yes to, and God does this lovely thing. I meet my neighbor. And if I want more of that, I've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. Now, that's how a small step in a good direction can take you someplace that's positive. But in David's case, who knows what small step launched him in the opposite direction. Like all sins, I believe it started internally with David, neglected, then became intentional, given the way that he prays. So we're going to look at some of the highlights of David's prayer. Um, we've already prayed this prayer together. Um, I think the first thing that really strikes me is, how do you have the courage to come to God when you have really blown it? Really, really blown it. How did he hope that he would find not just mercy, but that there would be a different future for him? He saw what happened with Saul. He knew his own judgment was that he deserved to die, even though Nathan said, you're not going to die. David does some things right, and I think it's a really good template for us, no matter what baggage we have. So the first thing that he did really right was he came to God. He waits on God. He throws himself on the mercy seat of God. And the context for his confession, everything he asks of God is based on this confidence in a covenant-keeping God, a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. You know, he sees, he sees what he's done. He knows. He knows what he's done. But he's putting all of that within the context of who God is. Now, David has a long history of relationship with God. It's beautiful. As a young lad, he's fighting lions and bears with the help of God. As a youth, he kills Goliath, who challenged the armies of Israel. As a would-be king when he's on the run from Saul. And then as king, if you're reading through First and Second Samuel, you see, you see David choosing to seek God for specific army strategies. Like he has brought God in at every corner. And now here he is, and he's facing the greatest test, perhaps, of his whole kingship to this point. The great enemy is himself. And he does the right thing. And he reminds himself, he must have had in the back of his mind a similar situation when the people of Israel really messed up. Do you remember when Moses breaks the first set of tablets because the children of Israel have... Um, have built a golden calf to worship. And it's just, it's a horrible scene. And God says, build new, you know, carve out new ones. Carve out new ones because we're not done yet, are we? We're not done yet. And then God says this about himself. He says, the Lord. I'm the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let's just pause on that for a little bit. 
God is mercy. He is rich in love. He is completely faithful, and he cannot change that because that is who he is for us, for everyone, for everything, for all time. That is the nature of the God we worship. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, the covenant is for all of us. We get to live in that every moment of every day, whether it feels like it, whether it seems like that because of circumstances or not. And what do we bring? Well, wisely, David brought nothing. <laughs> nothing except complete surrender. The second lesson that I think we learn from this psalm is that he owns his sin. He takes responsibility. He doesn't justify, deny, or explain. I and I alone, God, did this. Against you and you only have I sinned. He's not, what he's doing here, he's not denying the reality of what he did to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to their child, to the nation. But fundamentally, he's recognizing, he's trying to get at the ugly root that was behind it all, which was really his own rebellion against God. He'd been lying to himself when he knew that God's standard was truth in the inner being. So, you know, it can feel old-fashioned now to actually say that something is a sin. <laughs> but if you don't identify and confess what's wrong before God, that is the first pivotal step to actually moving into grace. It's like letting the light into the room so you can see, and then you can start picking it up in the right direction. So you, you hear that words like saying something is a sin or you felt guilty, it's like those are bad words now in our culture. They've become disconnected to their real meaning. It's like people say, don't you dare put guilt on me. Don't you dare argue with my choice. And I understand some of that. We Christians, we know, have been very guilty about cherry-picking cherry our list of the biggies, the big sins, and then we've employed tactics like blame and shame and mani manipulation. And sometimes we've been caught doing the very things that we say we hate. What has that to do with the restorative love of God? We've also, in the church, had problems with John 15, 12, where Jesus says, this is a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Hasn't always had our attention or priority. And love is another one of those hijacked words, right? We think of it somehow as syrupy or sentimental or wishy-washy, which is not at all like God's love for us. God's love always speaks the truth, and it's always intent on bringing us back to our true selves and to himself. Sin's a real thing. I love a book. Elizabeth Miller put me onto this book. It's the most exciting book about sin I've ever read. Now that should whet your appetite. It's like 72 pages. It's called Speaking of Sin, and it's by a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor. I love this book. If you want to borrow it from me, just ask. You're going to love it. But what she says, she argues about rediscovering the biblical meaning of sin. And she describes sin as a choice to remain in a wrecked relationship with God and other human beings, while the choice to repair relationships to, to, do, to, to follow through on your confession is this powerful remedy called repentance. And I love what 
what she says about this. She says, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, and death, no matter what we call those things. Abandoning the language will simply leave us helpless before them and increase their, our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace, since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. David understood this. He understood that he wasn't just having a bad day or a bad year. He'd chosen to walk. So it's interesting, too. Another thing David did really right was he didn't just ask to be forgiven. He said, God, you got to give me a new heart. I need you to give me a whole new spirit. I want your heart in my heart. I want to be made new. Truth in the innermost being. Wisdom. A pure heart. A steadfast and willing spirit to obey. God, you've got to give it to me. It's not in me. And thirdly, in his repentance, he understands that the sin that he's committed isn't just personal. It's had a broad impact on the community. And so David's heart is to try to make restoration within that community. He wants to make it right as, as far as he can. So he tells the Lord, I'm going to share with other sinners what God has done for me. I don't know if you've ever been in a small group setting where, maybe around here, where someone has made themselves vulnerable, and they've actually shared something that was really hard, really difficult. And then they've asked you as a group to pray for them. Isn't it amazing how humility breeds humility? Like how you, you love each other more. It's like grace is released because as a body you understand, hey, I've either been there, I could be there. And you build one another up. There is blessing and strength through shared burdens. In, in this vow to, to make restoration, to declare the faithfulness of God, it's not like da da David is trying to earn God's forgiveness in any way, but he's, it's just a recognition that in God's way, an outward show of sacrifice is nothing without the inward reality of truth. Now, by the end of the psalm, it's not sort of tied up with a pretty pink bow. There's not really a sense that David's at all finished. We, we see a human being in, in process with God. But we are definitely left with a sense of hope. First of all, because it's God that David's finally bringing in to the picture. And second, when you tell God you're in trouble and you need help, that is the first step to making it right, to being free. So, church, this morning, there's good news. God loves sinners, all of us, with all of our stuff. And he goes after us because his heart is always to restore relationship with us. I actually, I confess that I get nervous when people talk about sinners. Usually it's meaning somebody else other than themselves, and they say, well, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, as though somehow by saying it, we've done it. Um, to be honest, I personally don't have a good track record with that. 
as a reforming legalist, I, I usually hate the sin and avoid the sinner, but not God. Because of His great love and passion for us, He wades into the messy stew of our bad choices, He, our mistakes, our fears, our blind spots. He hates the stuff that destroys us. He challenges our sin, but He does it lovingly, firmly, and from up close. And because of the great value he puts on us, he'll keep knocking at the door of our hearts, waiting to be let in, not to get out or get away. He says, come to me, learn from me, find rest for your souls. Pharisees and legalists won't do that. It's too messy, it's embarrassing, it's humbling. How do you become a person after God's own heart. To my mind, as I've been thinking about that this week, it really is, how do you become a disciple of Jesus? It's the practical outworking of what passion for Jesus looks like. A disciple of Jesus just wants to be close. They want to be clean. They want to do whatever they see the master doing. They ask God to make them attentive to his spirit. And then they pay attention to what seems to please God and what doesn't. They guard their hearts, knowing that everything comes out of that place. So habits and practices of the Christian life aren't these restrictive rules. They're actually the means that they want to employ to achieve their greatest desire, which is to know Christ and to live for him. I like to think of it as disciples are the one thing kind of people. You know that other psalm of David where David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire at his temple. Or like the Apostle Paul, you know, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The heart of a disciple is always saying, morning God, where are you? How are we today? And what are we doing today? And the interesting thing is, really what we're doing is we're repeating back what God has been saying to us human beings forever. Adam, where are you? Um, Jesus, when he's healing people, well, before he would heal people, he would say, what do you want me to do for you? I'm thinking, what an odd question of Jesus. It's actually a deceptively simple question. Some years ago, I remember the Lord nudging me, and what I felt he said to me was, Lois, you can have as much of me as you want. That was very exciting and terrifying at the same time, because there's a challenge in there. How much of God do I want? My answer right now is that, God, I want to want you with all my heart, with everything I have. And he and I are working on the rest. If this morning you're at a point in your faith journey where you kind of, you're bored, you're frustrated, you're disconnected, and you know it, I want to say to you, not flippantly, but good. Good. Telling the truth is always the first step to, to turning this thing around. 
But I also want to say to you this morning, don't stop. Don't give up. Don't resign yourself to mediocrity, thinking this has got it. This, is, this, is this it? I guess this is it. I might as well just go make money and die rich. Don't settle for just following the rules either and keeping your head low. God has so much more for us. Ask and keep asking. And to help you along the way, find your Nathan. <laughs> find your Nathans. Okay, I'm actually not proposing that you find someone who will publicly humiliate you uh, for your sins. That was a very specific application for a particular situation. But find people who will pray with and for you, who will help you stay accountable, who are trustworthy to keep your confidences, but at the same time challenging you and pointing you back to God. This September, we're doing a relaunch of Covenant Community Groups. Paul Miller's heading it up. He'll be back tonight. And, and, and there's myself. There's Christy McCallum. You can talk to us. There's Catherine Evans. And um, who else? Catherine, yeah, Catherine Evans. We're on the team. I hope you will consider it. I hope you will. Um, and be praying for that ministry. And, and I want to challenge you to commit to honesty and vulnerability in your group. Commit to coming out and encouraging your fellow travelers in their walk with Jesus. Jesus loved meeting with sinners over a meal, much to the disgust of the righteous. And here we are at his table once again because of that great love he has for us that will not let us go. And we come this morning knowing that it is the finished work of the cross. That's our only grounds and not our good deeds. But today, if you know that you're not clean, you're not right with God, or you haven't asked him to, to be your Lord and Savior, and you, and you want to, today is a really good day to tell him so. And if you already know him, but you've sensed that you've disengaged, there's something between you that isn't right, don't ignore it. Tell him. Tell him so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, create in us clean hearts. Renew right and willing spirits in us. Lord, we know in our best days that we want nothing more than to be with you and follow you. You've made us for yourself, and it's in right relationship with you that we are most fully ourselves and we can most faithfully represent you in the world. Lord, we pause and we confess where we've been wrong because we chose it and where we've left undone things we should have done. Deliver us from pride, from thinking we can go it alone, and from our unbelief that you are anything other than who you have said you are and who you will always be. Fill your people with the love that passes all knowledge so that our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, this growing community that's springing up around Bronte and Dundas would know and be drawn to the loving kindness that's better than life. Help us to find other people you love and to bring them back, back home. And now, Lord, once again, for your body broken and your blood so freely spilled out for us, we say thank you.
In Jesus' name, amen.